the process of how the disease works is really, it's heartbreaking. What it's doing is the epithelial tissue in the lungs should be one cell layer thick. You're talking about where oxygen and blood are exchanging gases. You want that to be really, really thin. What nidovirus does is it causes those cells, that thin little layer, to thicken to where it's three, four, five cell layers deep to the point where oxygen can't get from the lungs to the bloodstream. So you're really kind of having these snakes slowly over months and months suffocate. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Podcast. Thank you all so much for being here. And Port City Pythons, we have some shirts available as always, much like the one I'm wearing. Um, Other than that, we have springtails available. Oh. What I was were you going to say? Gonna say? Uh, you you the really want to get this out there. No, no, no. Different. Oh, on okay. the topic of shirts, we just want to say thank you yes. to everyone who participated in our OCIC fundraiser. Um, oh, you told me the number. I think it was like 48, no, 38. 38 shirts total? Somewhere around there. I need to get a precise, that but I, I know the dollar amount. not as amount. cool, but the dollar amount sounds cooler. What's, yeah. what was well, it? it was $408. To me, that's a cool dollar amount. Which I want to get to 1000 next year. We're right. already starting campaigning for next year. But if you think, you know, we did it for about a month and yeah. for getting the word out there for it, I think we did pretty good in a month making $400 off shirts. There you go. I think and it good. all goes to a great cause. And $408 is better than nothing. Right. And go But $1,000 next year will be better than $408. Are we, do you want to do the same fundraiser or different? different no, no. Or different? We'll, just, we'll stick with this and we'll have a different design. And we'll come out with a different iteration. And then if we want to go forward doing something else, then we'll do it. But I want to... Um, I just want to prove that we could hit a thousand to for the indigos. <laughs> yeah, for the indigos. And other than that, like Joe said, the news you wanted to say. Yes, the news I wanted to say. So we are deep in laying season. Yes. And we haven't put out uh, a picture of this or anything, but long awaited palmettos. Our palmettos only locked once this year and hated the existence of each other, other than that. But the girl laid. And it's really exciting. I don't remember how many eggs we got. So if no one knew like what our palmettos acted like, they're both like if you essentially took a wild corn snake that was extremely flighty and hates all sights of humans and or other, any other creatures. And when you put them together, they fly away from each other and freak out. So we got that one lock and she laid 12 eggs. And so uh, palmettos. Hopefully, <laughs> if all goes yeah. well. I mean, and like we, we said this before, but this is like our first snake that we bought as babies and grew up. It's like our first big project that was intentional. <laughs> the rest have been like, you know, Tony and the old Danary right, girl. Right. That I had and then others we bought, kinda. you know, as sub-adults or adults. Yeah. But this is our first one we bought as babies and grew them up. And now we have eggs. And we really like Palmetto Project, so it's going to be exciting. And we didn't know if this is going to happen, so that's another reason why this is really exciting. Yeah, but once is all it takes, apparently, and there was no slug, so we'll take it. Yeah, I think it's also 
awesome to say that we're going two years in a row with zero slugs. You say that, but I just pulled a clutch from the Sanglo and it had one slug in it. <laughs> and all the eggs. You didn't tell me that before the podcast. I know. Why well, didn't we, we didn't have time to talk about it before the podcast. <laughs> and uh, she just had one of those those weird clutches where I hit her with a rat like randomly. And that yeah. sounds weird. She ate a rat uh, <laughs> kind of late. And I usually do all mice throughout the breeding season. And I don't know. I don't want to speculate. But she she came out with like weirdly calcified eggs. The eggs didn't stick together. The eggs were kind of bumpy and weren't completely calcified normally. And then there was a slug in there. So I think something was just a little bit off for her. And we did get that one fucking slug okay. out of... I'll uh... take back my statement then. <laughs> so yeah, last year we went uh, 10 clutches, zero slugs. This year we're at nine clutches... <laughs> And two slugs, if you count the Louisiana pine snake slug. Which Randall Berry will never let you live down throwing away. <laughs> he wanted me to incubate it, but sorry, Randall. I fed it to a king snake. Okay, so Oopsies. sorry for the long, long, long intro, guys. But today we have on Stephen Tillis. So if you don't know, Stephen has worked with short tail pythons as well as blood pythons. He's also traveled to Africa and he's also uh, doing some formal education as far as, uh, well, we'll get into that. He's smarter than me, so he'll explain it better. <laughs> so Stephen, welcome to the show and give us a little overview of how you got first got interested in reptiles. Sure. Thanks for having me. So what I find most interesting about when people tell her like how I got into her stories is that they're remarkably similar um and At what i ask every person <laughs> yeah well it's interesting because I, I just was seeing about how most people into weather all have the same story where as a child they had some weird weather event so it, it's just interesting to me that that the stories everyone has are very similar and how it can kind of shape our life so mine specifically was uh when i was probably four or five um we found this corn snake coiled up in the hose in the yard um, and I put it in a pretzel jar, like a big pretzel jar, um, and kept it for a day or two and like fed it a little anole and then went to release it. And when I reached my hand into the jar, uh, it bit me. And instead of freaking out, I just, I remember pausing for a second, looking at a little pin prick of blood, letting the snake go and for whatever reason, ever since then, I've just been kind of infatuated with reptiles as a whole, but specifically snakes. Um, and then when I was 13, I sold uh, my Legos on Craigslist and bought a pair of ball pythons. Uh, it was like a, a pinstripe male and a normal female and got one female pinstripe. And that was back when they were worth a, a little bit of money, you know? And I remember trading that one female for a dozen adult uh, breeding female ball pythons. And then the next year I had like 30 pinstripes and then it just sort of snowballs. So Nice. So what got you interested in ball pythons in particular? I mean, at that point, I'm sure the morph craze was starting to go crazy and it was. Yeah. So that was in 2006, I think. So I was, yeah, I think I was. 14, 15, by the time I got the first clutch, ball pythons were, were um, you know, just kind of a, a low-hanging fruit, kind of easy, easy going all around. Um, 
I've always been very, very measured on what I think I can handle. Uh, so at the time, that's what I went for as a kid. My actual, my first pair of snakes that I tried to breed were uh, Kenyan Samboas, except they weren't Kenyan Samboas. They are West African Samboas that someone imported for a couple bucks and um, sold as Kenyan Samboas. And I couldn't get them to eat. And I freaked out and I literally gave them away. And um, when we get into Africa, stuff i can talk a little bit more about that but that's that story ended up kind of coming full circle and now i have a uh, a nice captive bred colony of west african sand boas which is a species that is again imported for super cheap no one cares about they lay eggs they're really kind of a goofy sand boa uh, boa in general and um yeah so i was able to kind of figure out how to breed them and now have quite a quite a few captive bred animals going so where did you go from you know, breeding ball pythons to working with Eugene Bissett? <laughs> so, um, so as a whole, I've always been out of all the snakes. And, and again, this is another kind of trope within the industry where you have like bo uh, boa people and like python people. Um, I was always definitely a python person. And so my personal goal was to breed every genus of python by the time I was 25. I'm turning 25 a couple of days from now. And I've Look, they keep on changing the genuses. So I guess I'm pretty far from that goal. But um, yeah, so I met Eugene at a trade show in Orlando and I had just turned 18, like the two days before, and I just bred green tree pythons for the first time. And uh, so I had a couple of neonate green tree pythons on, uh, on my table. And um, for those who don't know, before Eugene, well, Gene's had a very, very long history. But at one point he was like on the forefront of green tree pythons and he walked by and said, oh, those are some nice looking green tree pythons. Um, you know, feel free to come by my shop at there, his uh, facility at some point. So I drove up there. Um, coincidentally, I got into UF around the same time and started looking for property up here and ended up buying five acres. That's probably, I mean, Gene's about half a mile that way, if that. Um, so I started working there because I was just so close and it made sense with school. So, uh, that's kind of how that turned into that is, is meeting someone at a trade show. Cause I had green tree pythons on the table. So my impression would be that if you're looking for a job in that field that you would eventually want to be a full-time snake breeder, was that ever a thought? Yeah. I mean, um, honestly, up until grad school for the past three years since uh, graduating undergrad and then now starting grad school, um, I was doing snakes full time. And even during undergrad, I was just more or less, I mean, I spent a lot of time doing snakes more or less uh, full time. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed the couple of years I spent doing it um, and eventually reached the point where I'm like, I don't know how much higher I can climb on this ladder. So what's next? And that's kind of how I'm in the, where I am now. And is there anything about like a commercial facility, like something that you didn't expect as far as, you know, if you're going to be a snake breeder as your career, I mean, are there unexpected consequences that you saw or like, uh, Oh yeah. I mean, what people don't tell you is if you genuinely love snakes, probably don't do it full time. It, it really will suck all the fun out of it. There are elements of it that, uh, are still fun, but yeah, when you really get into how, wh what professional level production looks like, 
it's it's guaranteed to be kind of suck all the fun out of the room when when you have to deal with that 10,000th email of how big is it what is it eating what is can i get 10,000 photos of the belly and and you know it got to the point where i'm like i don't i'm not enjoying talking to my customers as much as i really feel like i should um so i guess the hardest part about bringing a snake breeder is dealing with the people and the customers more so than, than just about anything else. In terms of the actual production, it's honestly a lot of not glamorous, monotonous uh, poop cleaning. <laughs> right. And I think it's funny because it seems like in order to be successful, you have to be the very opposite of what a natural snake person mm -hmm. usually is. So a snake person's usually introverted, usually is on team animal more so than team human as far as they would rather hang out with their animals than talk to humans. And and being a professional snake breeder, I feel like you have to be both of those people at the same time. Yeah, and I will admit that, because that was sort of the ultimate irony is I got into snakes because I didn't like people and that's what <laughs> ended up spending the most amount of time dealing with people more so than really anything else. Um, but what I do like about it is that uh, you really do have to get good at being a jack of all trades. I mean, you want to talk about building cages, you want to talk about uh, designing a facility, you really have to get pretty creative and come up with solutions that, you know, it, it, there's not necessarily a set blueprint. So you really have to do a lot of trial and error and figure out uh, what's the best way to do things in, in your specific circumstance at the very least. And I think what's most interesting is that obviously you're with someone who like created this industry as far as the commercial viability of it. So yeah. like he's, he, this is all like, we're building upon his work, you know? Yeah. So to give Gene a good bit of credit, he really was one of the first people to say, this is something that, that you can do as a job. And again, to give, uh, What's, what's unique about Eugene is that he's one of the few people that did not have outside capital. So if you look at a lot of the first people who got into doing it professionally, a lot of times it was they made their money from real estate or something else and then figured, okay, I can throw a bunch of seed money at this and, and create a viable enterprise. Eugene didn't. He, he worked it from the ground up from the beginning. And that's like, that's, that's not a story that I don't think any of the the original professional level snake breeders can really uh, say in the same way. Yeah, at least at that time. Yeah, absolutely, and that's wild. And I think what he's probably most known for now, as far as um, his collection goes, is his love for the data and the record keeping and stuff like that. So, could you give me a little insight on uh, basically like? what he does to uh, record keep all these animals. <laughs> so um, yeah, Gene and I working together in, in many ways is, is kind of a match made in heaven in a certain certain sense. So when I came in and started Gene's facility, it was all pen and paper records, but he had pen and paper records for everything going back from like, I mean, the longevity of some of the records from like the 70s is 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 crazy. Um, so we would have, you know, recorded every shed, recorded every feed, recorded every literally everything. He never like threw anything away. Nope. <laughs> but <laughs> so what I've done is kind of dragged that mentality into the 21st century with with 
this database stuff, but also kind of streamlined it a lot and in some senses. So I've automated a lot of the data collection um, and we're really kind of able to mine out really pretty interesting patterns. And so that's kind of where I've been at least somewhat of an uh, asset there is, is not only to bring in the database, but also to bring in um, systems kind of in mass. So um, like one of the really interesting things that, so he, um, for our food keeping, we have these stickers on the cages now that are kind of like a six month calendar. And at this point, um, it's just like a little paint pen dot. And so I can look at an animal's tub and see six months of feed records in, you know, instantly. Um, there's no more looking at cards. When did it eat? When did it not eat? Or even like looking at a data system, it's all right there in front of you. So it's really this like hybrid system of trying to figure out what's the most efficient way to, uh, express the, the relevant data and also make that, uh, a useful metric. You can collect a bunch of data all you want, but if you can't get use out of it, if you can't figure out how to query it, um, it's really not doing a lot for you. So uh, that's kind of where I've kind of come in and, and sort of meshed this really em heavy emphasis on data keeping into something that, that we can turn into a really functional tool. Do you have like computer networking background or? You not at all, not even a little bit. No, I have, <laughs> I have had to learn, it has taken me, so I think we first started switching over to the database system in 2015, 2016 was our first season using it. Um, it's all been trial and error, figuring it out, YouTube videos, trying to figure out the code. And, and honestly, I've been able to, the, the learning curve is kind of like a snowball. I'd say within the past three months, the, uh, amount of understanding I've had in this database system, the amount of stuff I'm able to automate is, is really pretty impressive. Um, and it, it's just so streamlined now. So, uh, one of the things that's very, very cool is, um, when we have an animal that dies in the colony, if it has any sort of hint of respiratory infection when it died, I've created code now for when that animal is logged out with a respiratory infection, all of the animals it's ever been exposed to is marked as having been exposed. So I have all of these phantom exposures. So in the event that we do have an actual pathogen that is uh, worth concern, we have this trail of every animal it's ever been exposed to and we can lock it down instantaneously. Um, so the, the, again, the amount of automation and just really deep diving into, um, the data is, is really kind of pretty, pretty cool. And it's crazy. Cause when you first started talking, I was thinking, okay, they're all, you know, recording for past things where they're eating or, you know, pooping or mating, whatever. But the fact now you're talking about your preventative, doing, yeah, measures. it's prevented in future things also. That's wild. Yeah, so it really is an emphasis on on the like ten thousand foot view, and and Gene's colony is a one of the largest colonies out there, at least of ball pythons. It, it's a big colony. It's a big ship to turn, um, and what this database is, has done is really given us a, a steering wheel. Um, yeah, it, it it's pretty pretty interesting. Um, I what what 
tickles me most about it is that when I started out, I had no vision for what I'm currently at with this database stuff. I call them uh, emergent properties where every time I would like add a level of complexity, something would kind of filter its way to the top and I'd be like, oh, that's something I can build even more on. So um, like with all of our orders now, they're logged out automated and, and we literally get a printed out sheet of all of these uh, animals that are supposed to go out on order and it just goes off like a checklist. And um, when we go to log those animals out as who they're being sold to, the code I have logs them out of exactly who they're going to. And so it used to take us, you know, a couple of hours to log out a, a, a big orders now minutes. Uh, so it really is just about these kind of uh, emergent properties that there's no way I could have started with a vision of that's going to be the end product. It's, it's these incremental steps of, I get a little bit of success with a little bit of code and it gets just one level deeper. Wow. So is there any way that, you know, we can draw from that as far as, you know, a hobbyist keeper, you know, someone with a hundred snakes, is there any way we can scale something down and like have that work to our advantage on a database <laughs> level? Are there simple things that we should be all keeping records of? So, um, that's a good question. There are other database softwares out there um, specific for snakes. What I didn't like is that I needed something just so much more custom than that. Uh, so for your day-to-day -day keeper, I would honestly say that most um, record keeping sources are, are you know, uh, anything digital that you can query data off of is extremely useful. Um, I think reptile scan is probably a decent one. Um, it's been a while since I've used them, but there are softwares out there if you want to design your own, which is, I have a hard time recommending that because it is very, like you will spend a ton and ton of time on it. But if you get it, if it clicks, you can build something that is exactly, exactly what you need. Instead of trying to, instead of trying to bend your collection to a database, you're bending the database to your collection. The, the collection is the database. The system is kind of all ingrained. I think even if we had a source to buy, say, the stickers that have a six-month calendar <laughs> that you can put on every tub and that you can mark simply, you know, with a red dot or a green dot if it ate or didn't eat, I think even that's an improvement above what a lot of us are doing. Yeah, it really is all about not only how to collect data, because it, that is important, but again, how do you make that usable? Because you can collect all the data you want. If you can't use it, it's not doing you any good. But what, what's, what's most funny about it is that um, all of this automation that I've built in the database really came from an artifact of me starting grad school when I know I'm not going to have time to be at this facility. So I pretty much automated away my position. Uh, and now I can have this <laughs> bird's eye view of, of, of the colony without actually having to physically be there. I kind of have uh, my database is my eyes and ears. Um, and I think, like Joe said, bringing it to a hobbyist kind of level, even for us, this is like our first year where we're, I really would have wished we had done more record keeping last year. I am losing track of things in my head. I'm yeah. keeping too many things in my head and I just lose them. Well, I, that's not what I was saying, but yeah, that's happening too. Um, <laughs> I was talking about, so like this year, lot 
this is, I mean, we're new breeders. This is our second year breeding a lot of things. Like significantly. Significantly, yeah. right. Second year breeding significantly. And there's lots of snakes like, oh, damn it. I don't remember how many they had last year. It's like we knew they were all going to have bigger clutches because they're older, but there's one that had like one less. And I'm like, okay, I wonder, or we kind of figured out how many it had one less. But I, it'd be interesting to track, oh, this one had four more this one had 10 more like so like we're like just that. starting to have right. these patterns emerge so therefore we can see if a female is declining and we can see if she's increasing but are, is there anything else that we want to look for or that data can tell us so at the base level the, the if you track literally nothing else track eggs slugs and date laid that's something that can easily be entered into Excel, and then you can start kind of using the data into something relevant. But yeah, if you're if you're going based off of what you remember in your head, it'll it'll never pan out. So I, and I've been to I've worked in a bunch of different facilities, not just genes. Um, you know, I, I do a fair amount of ultrasounding for other colonies and stuff like that. So I get to see how a lot of places have their their animals situated. Um, and yeah, at the 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 lowest common denominator, the if you do nothing else, track eggs, slugs, and date laid. Definitely. Even that today. Well, we track uh, when they locked and then date laid. And it's been so interesting. Like there's some that locked like two weeks before some others. And then the girl laid later. And there's now it's funny, though, because at the same time, like I'm so happy I'm tracking this, but it only leads to more questions. But often my is, my late layers are still late layers and my early layers are often still early layers. But it makes layers, it leads to more questions and it frustrates yeah. me that I can't figure out the answers for all those questions. And I'm like, do I want to get deeper into this? Because then I feel like I'm going to get more frustrated. And it's also you have you're lucky to have time on your side as far as, you know, the more data you collect over time. Yeah. Well, again, if you can create a system that's that's kind of passive data collection. If, if it is ingrained into your system where you're entering data without even realizing that you're entering data, that's where it becomes exceptionally useful. So like even in Gene's colony, I can pretty much predict now at this point how many clutches I think we're going to have because we have this pattern now where we kind of have this bimodal um, production where we'll get like uh, a big year and then kind of like a softer year and then another big year and then kind of a softer year. And so I can look at that, take that into a calculation. I can look at the number. Uh, so I also know based on the age of a female, what their average clutch size is going to be. So I can say, okay, how many new females are we coming online? And with a, a degree of certainty that honestly is, has kind of surprised me, um, I can kind of predict the amount of clutches we're going to have. And even from that, what our average egg count is going to be. Um, you know, if you start collecting data, the data will tell you things. You just need to know how to ask. And does does outside temperature have stuff like the kind of winter and summers you're having? Does that have any effect? And do you input that into your stuff? I'm sure it does. So we have that collected on paper. I've been very, very, very tempted to add that in. Um, I just haven't convinced myself to spend a bunch of time backlogging a bunch of temperature data because at this point, in terms of what I can usefully get out of it, um, I'm pretty satisfied with with what we have. So there's not enough. I don't have enough motivation to ask the question. It's really is really what it comes down to. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. Basically, there you go. Yeah. Wow, I've never heard that one. Oh, that's a new one for you. <laughs> the juice isn't worth the squeeze. <laughs> I feel like that could be taken a different. Way. Well, that's you, but <laughs> but it's. I mean, I think. 
I don't think anyone else in the industry is taking it as serious as that. So I think maybe we should realize that it would benefit us greatly, even as individuals, to to do something. Hey, like I have that. to say, no, Riley, you, Riley Jemison has been going crazy on his data. T- have you seen his stories? I do have to say, that some people. He also comes doing... from the zoo world, so maybe he's used to that more so than we are. I'm sure. Yeah. So with prices, especially on ball pythons, with pi- prices starting to decrease, there's a lot of like, there's really been a push away from data. I feel like because if stuff's not expensive, it's not as necessary to track. My philosophy is the exact opposite. If stuff is decreasing in price, that's when you really have to dive deep in the data because if you can get a couple bucks more per animal on your bottom line. And and in a certain scale, that adds up more than significantly. So, yeah, I really feel like the future is going to be data. And Eugene also, he has a large colony of corn snakes too, correct? He does, yep. So, I mean, that's that's what we breed. It's on a totally different <laughs> level, obviously. But um, I'm sure, so you feel that, that it matters more so with those lower dollar animals than say a ball python or are you are you collecting data for the corn snakes so i'm actually not in charge of the colubra database um i was specifically working with with the pythons there but there is a colubra database that we get useful information out of um is but it, yeah i'm not the one that's, 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 that's working on that is it a really <laughs> Do you guys fight is it a sophisticated <laughs> it's um it's just different uh because the um the database that I have, it, it, there's so much more. I, I mean, we have like hundreds of ball python uh, morphs compared to not as many colubrid things. So the, the questions you're asking are just fundamentally different. Um, that being said, I, 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 I have built in a ton of automation into my database, but that's again simply because of the fact that I'm not there, whereas the colubrid person is still there to, to uh, really manage that database better. So I, I really had to, again, I, I had to automate away my position. And I'm sure that there is, as far as translating that data, and there's something to learn for from all of us from that data, you know, like something for all of us to learn from that data, whether it's breeding snakes and how to do it more efficiently. Um, is that part of giving Eugene an edge, or can we eventually see, <laughs> see the results and benefit from it? Um, you know, that's a good question, because I'm I'm of the mindset that probably any given situation is going to be unique to a, a, a specific colony. I mean, there's so many thousands of parameters we put into these animals that I really don't know how much, uh, how much use the data would have in other facilities. Um, which is, yeah, why I would encourage people to, to make their own data sets because it really, I can tell you what it's like in this specific colony, but, but you know, even writing, writing papers and stuff like that, you really have to be specific as to where the data is relevant or not. It's like, I can tell you that in a large colony in Gainesville, it happens this way, but three miles down the street, they might have a totally different thing. Right. Um, so kind of piggybacking off that. Now, I know nothing about computers or code or anything, but is it possible to take what you have created and kind of like package it into a sellable software for other large keepers? I've, I've thought about that. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. In another life, I'm sure I'll 
end up going down that route probably when I'm done with grad school. Um, yeah, I've definitely, definitely put a lot of thought towards that at the time. I, it's just so the, the, the problem you get is kind of like that the power of the database is that it's so unique to that specific colony and system that if I were to create something that would be scalable, I don't know if it'd be as useful. I don't know if it would be as custom for that specific enterprise where, where it would have the same utility. Right. Yeah. I think we need to personally cater a system that works for us and is flawlessly more flawlessly integrated instead of me taking out my phone, putting in an Excel and I just get annoyed by all that, especially when I'm cleaning up, you know, so shit. You don't and want I don't to like touch my stop phone. and touch your phone and yeah. do that and then come back. So like, that's something that I think we need to figure out on our own to a sense. You right. Know, but we're, I'm saying, could now. he market it to other, yeah, yeah, you know, no, other totally people understand. who have facilities as huge as, you know? Right. And I think that reptile scan and stuff like that has tried that, but, Yep. It doesn't seem to have. Uh, it doesn't catch on for everyone. I remember when no. the, uh, the the ball python guys used to all have their little uh, QR QR codes and mm -hmm. stuff with pictures of their snakes and their. But uh, but then and the other thing too that that data gives you is it gives you uh, legitimacy. So um, right now, and this has been a continuing trend where where the politics against reptile keeping is kind of weighted against us if you have these multi-generational records and saying that you know this is not the same animal that's coming out of west africa um you know this is an animal that is fundamentally ge different generationally different um you kind of build the case that that maybe this animal is is kind of leaning more towards domestic than than wildlife and from that you can kind of build a case of you know, should these fall under the same category as goldfish and uh, hamsters and less under the category of, you know, I guess just by anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they're viewed by the general public as exotic animals, but which they still are, but it's also kind of you're farming them also. I mean, when it comes to the commercial aspect. Yeah, exactly. One of the interesting trends that we've had is that, um, and this is something I need to get like, I need to dig deeper on this data to try and see if I can really parse it out as something significant, like statistically significant. But um, the more generations you remove from wild stock, the more aseasonal producers they are. Um, oh. Where the where you start seeing this this year round cycling, that's really an artifact of, of multi generations in captivity. So you think that just would it be too far-fetched to say that's a sign of domestication? I would lean I would lean that way. I mean, I can't say that they are domesticated, but I will say that this aseasonal snake with a proclivity for eating lab strain European rodents is not the same animal that is coming out of the wilds of West Africa. Now, what's that going to look like? 10, 20, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, who knows? Uh, and that's really what I'm excited about with this database stuff. And now, especially with grad school that I'm starting to do more pathogen research, um, my goal is where I think I'm gonna, gonna start gearing towards in the future is, is to maybe start building some of these databases um, and kind of design within them 
a structure to map out how to keep a species alive in captivity for 200 years. You know, what is that going to look like genetically? What is that going to look like pathogen risk? What is that going to look like? It, you can really, when you have this data and a, and, a, and a thing in place for it, you can plot out and kind of model how you how you want that to go. And that's sort of the the pie in the sky goal is to turn this database into something that would guarantee a species existence for ever. Um, you think and that's so that's possible? where I, I don't know. Um, so my my undergrad was in wildlife ecology and conservation, and my PhD is going to be in comparative diagnostic and population medicine. So I have this base where I'm starting with a degree in wildlife, looking at pathogens, and also have a ton of experience in the in the captive industry to the point where I think I can kind of tie these together and, and look at what does a captive population have to look like to persist. Now, whether or not that captive population is given the oxygen to exist might be out of my control, but I can at least design a system to, to show what it might look like. And that's what I think species survival is going to at least some species survival is going to look like moving forward is, is really what we elect to drag into the 22nd, 23rd, 24th centuries. And um, again, that's just probably ambitious to state that my little database could do anything close to that. But it is to say that I don't think that could happen without data in place for it. And you're looking at populations as a whole or specific, you're you know focusing on specific species? Um, really it would probably be relevant just to the specific species. So, and the other thing that we don't think about, we tend to think about uh, our, our captive populations as isolated and irrelevant to wild populations. But um, one of the things that, that has been a, a kind of a rude awakening studying some of these pathogen stuff is, is that um, captive and wild populations, the, the, the line between the two, at least on a pathogen front is maybe not as, firm of a line as we think it is. I mean, we as a, as a community don't really think about biosecurity in the same way that we really probably should. I mean, you guys have native colubrids. Uh, you guys have captive colubrids. Are you cognitively thinking what is happening to this, you know, snake crap that I throw in the trash can and say bye-bye to what are the chances that it ends up in a landfill and a little corn snake comes crawling across and picks up who knows what we really don't know what's out there until it's a problem and a lot of times it doesn't become a problem until it makes its way into wild stuff um and other times we have it popping up in research <laughs> exactly yeah and the other the other thing we have too is that um you can have a pathogen that's evolved in a specific species and that species can deal with it no problems but um yes. if it makes it into a closely related species that doesn't have that same immunity, that's when you start seeing problems. Um, and there's no no sense to think that that wouldn't, that wall wouldn't exist. That, that wall doesn't end at your snake room wall, you know? I mean, it's sad to say, but we don't even think about the things we eat and throw out and what it, you know, affects, not we specifically, the human population as a whole, we don't think about our own trash that we make and, you know, waste that we make and where it goes and how it ends up, much less asking people to think about their snake shit and where it goes. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll tell you what keeps me up at night. 
Um, so I have on the property a ton of native gopher tortoises. I also have Aldabran tortoises. Um, and if you look at like, there's a ton of different pathogens floating around in tortoises that in a specific tortoise species might do absolutely nothing at all. You would have no reason to think that this animal would harbor any sort of pathogen because functionally it isn't. But um, when I step into my tortoise pen and step out into the grass that I see my native tortoises munching, that keeps me up at night. So much so that I have tortoise pen shoes, normal shoes. You know, it's it's all about building in these layers of biosecurity that that I really don't think we think about enough. And it's not until it's one of those lessons that once you learn it, it will you will never forget it. Now you will probably have uh, more insight on this, but I saw an article recently that you know the Burmese python may be spreading pathogens to native Florida species. I don't know if you've heard that or you read that particular article. Yes, yeah. So they, um, so I think the where the specific origin of so it's a pentastome, which is kind of like a worm. And I've done enough necropsies on wild Burmese pythons now, where on a good chunk of them, you can see these uh, these worms, these pentastomes uh, in the lungs of these Burmese pythons. And in the Burmese python, they're about an inch long and a little thin thing. They're nothing, especially on a big giant Burmese python. Somehow they have made it into native species, especially uh, pygmy, pygmy rattlesnakes. Um, and in those pygmy rattlesnakes, that same little one inch worm is like three, four inches long. and you know, about a quarter inch in diameter. And meanwhile, this is, you're talking about a, a two foot long pygmy rattlesnake compared to like a, a 15 foot long Burmese python. So you have the same pathogen that's made this jump into a native species that's doing really quite a number on those, those populations. And um, unlike the Burmese python, which has a temperature restricted range, these pentastomes don't seem to have that same effect. So we've had those pentastomes make their way up even as far as like North Florida here, far, far past the range of any Burmese python would. And those pentasomes, that's something that would be native to Burma, Myanmar? Again, I, I still think they're trying to figure out exactly, uh, I don't know if they have the smoking gun to say this is something that the berms, we know the berms brought in, but it's something that the berms have and are spreading. But I, I, I actually, I don't, I'm not a parasitologist, so I don't know what the how extensive our back, uh, understanding of the back history of these pentastomes are. But I do know berms are playing a large role in that. And then that's that's a great example of where our you know captive exotic snakes, the line between them and wild stuff is is one parasite egg away from being a problem. That's crazy. <laughs> I feel like so often we're focused on you know their. Uh... They're like not personality. That's not the right word. Uh, what's a better <laughs> personal well-being? As no, far no, as... no, no. They're what's a better, more smart way to say personality? Um, I can't think of it. But we behavior. Yeah, maybe that <laughs> one. We look at the behavior different. You know, we're like, wow. You know, F one versus F three. Everything that's their behavior and everything is so different. They're eating. They're they're docile. You know how docile we're talking about that, and we focus on how separate that is. And just, you know, things we see with our eyes. I think as snake breeders, very little are we focusing on what's in the inside until it's a problem. And until then it's a problem. Oh, yep. Yeah, so, what we do is, you know, it has a respiratory. Hit it with Batril. That's pretty much it. So I'll say two things. Um, 
One is that reptile shows are way less fun now. They, I'm, I'm literally walking around terrified, like don't want to touch anything. Like the, the amount of stuff that I know that I'm not seeing because you just can't see a pathogen. It just really terrifies me now. Um, the other thing too is that uh, if you talk to, I've heard one one virologist talk about if you were to design a system to create a nasty snake pathogen, the way we've set up our industry is about the perfect way you'd go about doing it, where you have <laughs> these like same bin uh, yeah, the only yeah you, you, you bring it together in a central location with a trade show there's a lot of free flow between colonies within those colonies you have a lot of like closely related but not necessarily the same species because again if you're if you're like me and a python person and i have pythons from all around the world i have pathogens from all around the world and those pathogens in those snakes do nothing until they jump into their closely related brethren species then they start causing a problem and then meanwhile, we have these trade shows all across the country and we're just, we're just swapping it around. Again, if you were to create a system to create a really <laughs> good snake pathogen, we've done a pretty good job of that. It's like a college dorm so party. <laughs> yeah, it's like a bad frat party. Yeah, bad like a bad frat party. Over and over, and over again. <laughs> but I mean, is there any way of avoiding it? That's what it comes down to. And really, I look at it through through a functional lens. Um, you know, clearly not all pathogens are going to become problems. And, you know, maybe a pathogen is not a problem in a specific species. So you do kind of like, really what it comes down to is quarantine, which is something we as an industry have, have really gotten sloppy on. Um, at this point, I do three months qu quarantines now. Um, and usually I'll probably incorporate some fair amount of testing in that as well. Um, yeah, so it really comes down to, to quarantine. That's, that's gonna be our best defense. That's gonna be your first line of blanket defense. And the other thing I tell people is that your cheapest investment is walls. So you have a separate area for babies, separate area for adults, separate area for quarantine. You know, really you try and get as much independent airspace between the two between all of them that you can that's going to be your best line of defense it's really comes down to a metric of, of containment and now obviously i have to i have to say it because obviously most of us quarantine for you know even if we're doing three months six months it doesn't matter nido can be dormant for two years of the animal's life and then it gets sick in adulthood or something like it no physical signs Honestly, far more than that. Um, so in my colony, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing, because there's, so NIDO, uh, and so I guess we'll back up some. Um, so NIDO virus is, is, a, is a large group of viruses. Um, I mean, there is a NIDO virus in people, there's a NIDO virus in insects, there's a ton of NIDO viruses in like turtles, um, but the uh, cattle, but we're finding them the most lately has been in snakes, but that's also because we're looking for it. Just because we're not looking for it elsewhere doesn't mean it doesn't exist elsewhere. But uh, especially in pythons, we're seeing a ton of nidovirus diversity. I mean, the amount of species, how I tell people about my research is like, we discover new nidovirus species probably about once a month and about once a week, I'll discover a new strain. So it's the, the, the virus diversity out there is pretty immense and a good portion of them may or may not cause any problems. So this is where I can kind of, if you want to start talking about my colony specifically, 
um, we can start talking about that. So I'll pull up sure. pull up some of my data. Um, so I looked at 155, I tested 155 of my adult breeding animals. Um, and within those 155 animals, I humbly say that I, I run a pretty tight ship, um, especially compared to some of the, you know, Most. some of the stuff you see. Yeah. So <laughs> in my 155 animals, I had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 11, 12 species of python and two species of sand boa. Um, so within those 14 species, I have, I think the last time I counted was six separate nidovirus species and nine strains within those species and 155 snake colony at the time uh, in terms of adults. So what I tell people is if you're not testing for nidovirus, it is honestly probably more likely that there is a nidovirus somewhere in your collection than that there isn't. But um, within those six species and nine strains or whatever, uh, only one or two was causing disease in my colony. Um, I had a green tree python that popped a positive that I've had for nearly a decade without a single respiratory infection. And I have no doubt she's had that for the entire time. I have a uh, Kenyan Sambo is that, that popped positives that uh, the, the Kenyan Sambo one was, it was a very different virus. I mean, you're talking about 60% different than, than some of the other nidoviruses we're seeing. So very different. And, um, those snakes, if I gave you these sand boas and said, actually, I can even do, do one better because, uh, for, for international shipping, um, for CITES to Europe, you need health inspections. So I had a health inspection of sand boas, uh, from one of the authors on the first papers of nidovirus. And he looked at these animals and gave them a clean bill of health. And they ended up popping a positive for, for a nidovirus. So you, uh, but clearly that's a nidovirus that's, that's not causing really any, uh, practical health concerns, maybe under certain circumstances, it, it, it could. So I'll give you kind of the, uh, the bingo board of, of nidovirus, what you need to listen to. And when you listen for it, you will hear it retroactively and you'll realize that, that really this has probably been around since, since the beginning and almost certainly has. So seasonal resp. If you have a species that's known for in the winter, they get a little bit of drool. That's Nido. Almost. Uh, I, I, I can't say certainly, but, but yeah. So green tree pythons historically, it's always been, yeah, they get, they get a little bit of resp in the, in the winter and it clears back up. Nido virus. What happens is they have this Nido virus. It's not causing them any problems. It gets a little cool. Their immune system dips. That that virus pops its head up. When it warms back up, that snake's immune system kicks back in, and and that virus doesn't go away, but it, it functionally is not no longer causing illness. So, so uh, seasonal resp. That's Nido. Fragile. Uh, beyond reasonable tolerances. So one of the things you'll hear about blood pythons and blood pythons specifically is that they get respiratory infections really easily and you have to give them a bunch of ventilation and humidity. 
Yeah. I would place a significant wager that what we're actually seeing is is a nidovirus within blood pythons. And I think that's definitely been reflected in, in my colony. But if you hear about people historically talk about blood pythons, it's always been that they're fragile. And it's why would a blood python from Sumatra be fragile and a Borneo short-tail python at kind of more or less the same latitude, not. And the reason is because there's not much there's not many people breeding blood pythons to Borneo uh, short-tail pythons. So blood pythons tend to be kind of kept within their own populations. And so if you have a virus that's floating around in blood pythons, it might not make the jump into Borneo short-tail pythons unless they have kind of direct contact. And so you hear these stories of these fragile pythons. I will say now that I've started screening my colony for uh, nidovirus and done heavy culling on on positives a blood python with a resp is not a thing in my colony like it doesn't happen it used to happen all the time where again in the winter they get a little bit of drool when they're going into shed they'd get like a little bit of drool when they're um yeah now that's completely completely gone away and it would never cause them to get a full-blown resp it'll always just be a little bit of symptom and then clear right on up yeah nidovirus so, um, and then, oh, there's one other thing that, that again, when I, whenever I hear this, I'm like, I'm thinking that could more likely be nidovirus than anything else. I, I guess it is when, when they get a little bit of drool going into shed, that's again, something that you're seeing their immune system dip down a little bit. And so something underlying that you wouldn't otherwise see kind of pops its head up until that animal's immune system kicks back in and then it gets stomped back down. And really those are the snakes that, that worry me more so than the ones that break with a resp and die because those are the ones that are like the typhoid marys of your colony that are that can live with this virus but you may introduce them to another snake and that snake doesn't have that same immunity and that snake can be wiped out and that that's how that that's how a nidovirus can can be spread around without even without people even realizing it if you say oh my colony has been historically without problems and then you add in another animal and all of a sudden that animal dies in a very quick time frame, that might be something that that says that my colony has something that this animal wasn't ready to be exposed to. Uh, like I said, reptile shows keep me up at night now. Yeah, thank you for passing that fear on. I really appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> but okay, so obviously Nido, we haven't known what it is, right? You know, for very long. But is it possible to track? I don't know how to phrase this, what people thought, you know, the signs that people were seeing back then symptoms. before or symptoms we were seeing back then before it was NIDO. Is it tra possible to track as if there's been an uptake in it, even though we didn't know what it was forever? Probably not. Um, it's really not. These viruses aren't very, um, you know, it's really kind of a lot of hearsay. So like even back in the day when people talk about Burmese pythons, how they used to get respiratory infections really easily, that again, I'm, I'm almost certain was a nidovirus circulating back then. Um, there'd be no way to retroactively confirm that that was really what was going on. Um, one of the things we are doing now is, is starting to plot the amount of diversity we have in nidoviruses, which again is, is really quite significant. And then kind of figuring out, okay, from there we can maybe start I don't think any, well, I think there's one study that's about to be published that looks at 
colonies and tracks over time a prevalence of nidoviruses. So that might be something to look into. But um, as far as scaling it up from there, I don't know how many options they would they would really have. I, I would love to. I've long thought about like an anonymous online mm. nidovirus database where you can say I have X number of species, this many popped a positive, this is how many died in a certain amount of time frame, and that's really the only thing that I think you could start collecting some of that data. And I don't know if you could ever convince enough herpers to really participate enough to get anything meaningful a bunch of people to be transparent to where being transparent would Affects probably hurt business. them financially but the a little bit. aspect is very interesting well and what i wanted to ask and i hate to be like speculative but um Basically. say things like i'm sorry if i'm wrong on this but it's either granite or green burmese pythons they may get respiratory easily i've heard people say that and maybe it is it's a recessive gene where obviously they're all related to a certain point. So could that be that it's just being passed on like a NIDO is just being passed on? So, well, so we have no evidence and no reason to think that there'd be any sort of vertical transmission. Um, so it's not like the parents are probably gonna be passing it along to the offspring. Um, even if the, the snake lays on that clutch of eggs and is breathing onto that surface of the egg, the chances of that virus still being active by the time that baby hatches out, probably not great. Um, so what we could be seeing, there's, there's a number of things that could explain that. One is if you do have a certain inbred population where their immune system just maybe isn't quite up to par, that might be one explanation. Another thing is if you have granite, or whatever, Burmese pythons, what are you going to breed it to? Probably something that is also either het granite or granite or whatever. So even if you have, even if it could have nothing to do with the mutation, but if you have a virus that pops up first in granite, it's more likely to be spread to another granite or a head granite and then so on and so forth. So what we may be seeing is, is really kind of an illusory correlation where, where it really has nothing to do with the mutation. It's just that that mutation is being bred together. So it has more contact time with infected individuals if those infected individuals are of that mutation. So these are all questions that I will maybe have answers for in four years when I <laughs> finish grad school. But for the time being, it's yeah, pure speculation on my part as far as all that goes. So will this be part of your thesis? Um, is this what you're working on? Is this, I mean, what you're dedicating yourself to? Yeah, so my uh, thesis is specific to, at least at this point, pretty much specific to nidovirus. Um, so there's a couple of different projects we're working on with that. Um, one of the things we're working on right now is a decontamination study um, where, you know, how effective are certain right now we we don't really have any direct evidence on nidovirus we have evidence on stuff closely related to it and and how we think this virus is going to behave but uh we're working on projects now to actually establish those uh like in, infectious titers and stuff like that to see okay how long can it can a viable virus exist on a surface how long uh how how long does a contact time have to be for a disinfectant which disinfectants work um does exposure to UV light matter? So these are all questions that are, are coming into my research. And I guess we should talk a little bit about how we find out that our animal has NIDO. So you said, you know, you found one with, you know, possibly a few different species and different strands as well. So is there a test that encompasses all those? Like if it's testing for NIDO, will it find all those species and strands? 
probably not, but it probably will find, because again, we don't know what we're missing. We, we couldn't know what we're missing. And every week we're finding stuff that we're missing, but the stuff that we're missing, we're missing it because it's not causing really much damage. So I will say that um, there are tests available that will probably catch most of the, what I would consider medically relevant species that we know of so far. Um, so fish head labs would be probably the, the um, test most readily available to uh, consumers. That would be a test that I would, that I would trust. And I've, I've even supplied them animals for uh, validating some of those tests. So again, it's, that would be a test that I trust. Um, I am biased in that I work they're doing grad school at UF, but US uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, this is also, I mean, they're they are pretty much the gold standard as far as all that kind of testing goes. Um, but that one's a little bit more, little bit more pricey and a little bit harder to submit samples to because they tend to need a referencing veterinarian, whereas uh, fish head labs won't. Um, so those would be the two, two labs that I would have the most trust in. And um, I'm, again, not sure how much how open they are to receiving samples, but Colorado State I know also has good testing. So how would, what would be the best way for one of us little unsanitary herpers here? <laughs> how, what's the best way to make sure that we get a good sample of our snake, you know, to be tested? Yes, so um, what you're trying to do is swab the uh, coena, which is kind of like the, it's where the, the um, nostrils kind of connect down to the trachea. Um, on the roof of the mouth. So there's a really good area. The throat is a really good area and the uh, trachea itself is a really good area. So that's kind of what I do is I start at the roof of the mouth, um, the coena, uh, back of the throat and then around the um, glottis there. And uh, that'll kind of give you a good sample. Um, the other important thing is going to be uh, either keeping it in a cold chain where it's always being kept cold or um, using RNA later, uh, which is able to preserve the RNA for quite some time. So RNA is actually at least uh, RNA from, from nidovirus, which is a single stranded RNA, is really kind of sensitive. It's honestly kind of a, I'm, I'm impressed that it's able to do much of any harm, but um, like if it gets too hot, it gets degraded to the point where it's no longer functional. If it, uh, you know, it, it really is kind of an inherently fragile thing. So to get the best sample possible, I would definitely recommend the, the easiest thing to do is RNA later, which is, is going to store that for, I think, up to at least a week, but even more than that, without really any sort of sample degradation. So I'm assuming that any at-home test that you get sent is going to have that? I certainly know the ones from uh, Fish Head Labs do, and that, that would be why I would probably recommend that one among, among others. But, uh, you know, the accuracy of a test is really only as good as the accuracy of a sample. If if I take a swab and wave around in the air, I can not going to pop a positive, but that's not also going to tell me very much. So, right. um, yeah, it's really about ensuring you get the best sample possible. And now, if you don't mind, can you go in a little detail of kind of what happened in your own collection as it regards NIDO and kind of where you're pivoting to? Sure. So. So uh, nidovirus itself is actually kind of what ended up getting me into grad school. I, I had this problem pop up in my colony and ended up at a, just happened to be down the street from, from where some of the research on the forefront of nidovirus was occurring. And that kind of 
parlayed into grad school. But when I look at my colony, I think I can track nidovirus or symptoms that I think would be associated with nidovirus back from the very beginning, from when I was 16. I actually think that that um, probably my first carpet python I ever got, I could even attribute some form of, of nidovirus to that. But what specifically made it relevant in my colony is I got a new building. And when I got a new building, I moved everything. And with that, before it was always, you know, you get a little bit of seasonal resp and then it'd go away. And it was always here and there. So I assumed this is just a little bit of stress and these specific animals have this little bit of immune system dip. And that's why I'm seeing this. It, I would have no reason to think that it was any sort of uh, pathogen. Um, when I moved buildings, that applied an even stress pressure, pressure across the entire population. And all of a sudden in one week, I go from no resp to half the colony having resp. So it's that little, that, that universal stress pressure dipped all of their immune systems enough to the point where they all started breaking. And I remember walking into my colony one day and I'm like, that whole row is drooling. That whole row isn't. That whole row is. And I'm like, if I'm being honest with myself, this looks like what a pathogen would look like. And so that's what got the ball rolling for me to start testing stuff. Um, and so I, I've done, I think, three rounds of testing now over the course of a year. Um, initially, I think out of the uh, 155 adult animals that I had tested, um, what percentage? Uh, almost... 20, almost a quarter of them ended up popping a positive. And um, I either euthanized, I, I, what I did was I got really intense on it. Anything that was a positive, I euthanized if it wasn't dead already. Anything that had been bred to a positive snake, even if it had tested negative within the past year, I euthanized. Wow. So I lost uh, a, most of my colony. Now, where I was benefited by is that my adult colony was kept and is always kept completely separately from, from the juveniles and raise ups that I have. So I kind of already had a little bit of a backup colony and that's really what my colony consists of now is, is stuff that I was raising up that I know is kind of from a fresh slate. But um, that's again, where I keep saying that, that the best investment you're gonna make is walls because what could have been I lost everything is now I lost a good chunk of breeders, but it's survivable kind of. Um, and that also means that I can, you know, the, the animals that I was selling, I could have more confidence that, that they would not have a higher risk of being positive than say, again, any snake you buy at a reptile expo. And now I have had friends who have tested their animals and it seems like uh, they've had ones that were positive, be negative, negative, be positive and switch back and forth. So could you give us a little insight of why that might be? Okay, yeah. So with any sort of test, you have sensitivity and specificity. So specificity is what it can detect. And you want, especially with nidovirus, you want, um, because there's so much variation, I mean, I was saying 60% divergent in some some groups. So it's really hard to develop a, t a primer that's going to be diverse enough to 
find all the nidoviruses without also finding a million other things you're not looking for. So that's been the trickiest thing is to dial in the, the specificity of that test. But the other thing you're looking at is sensitivity. And we really have no idea what the sensitivity is on some of these tests. We, we have no idea what RNA concentration needs to be on a swab um, before it can really be detected. So what you could be seeing is, and I had this happen too, where I'd have a, I had a snake that tested negative three times, went to a different colony, and that, that movement caused that snake to end up getting a positive. Um, so again, this is a snake that probably was positive from the get-go, but it's the, the, the infection was so low that it either wasn't shedding enough virus to be detected or it wasn't shedding virus at all. So that could explain why you're seeing some positives, some negatives. That being said, as far as I'm concerned, if you see a positive, I just always would consider that snake a positive. And if you see a snake that was with a positive, even if it's showing a negative. But showing some symptoms. I mean, even if it's not showing symptoms, even if it's not showing symptoms, there would still be enough cause for concern for me to be like, I'm going to err on the side of caution. Yeah, and I think uh, that's something that we got a real good glimpse of with with Tony's collection because he was very he was very militant like that. He was like, "Screw it, everyone's over here, and everyone like that's over there." And he's like, "Nothing's going anywhere." And and I was like, "Whoa, that's crazy!" Like I didn't know it was that, he, but it is that serious. Yeah, like I mean, he put them. And, in that, and that's the right way room. to do it. He, yeah, yeah. He made he like refitted or <laughs> redesigned part of his house. Yeah, just to make so, sure that his babies could be separate yeah, from his yeah. juveniles, could be separate from his adults and things that have been positive or negative or And especially exposed. in the green tree. You know, it's different. It's about green It seems trees. to be. I'm just talking about price-wise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just talking about price and money-wise. You want to. And just the, you know, green tree, the view of them, they're more. There's. I think more it's superior than I don't know. Others. It and seems so... like, and I don't know, Stephen, if anyone knows the the root cause of it, but it seems like something that, at least from the behavior of green trees in general, seems to have been very common in green tree pythons. Or you know, we have always heard of uh, green tree pythons not being very hardy, dropping dead randomly. But like, yeah, I so I haven't yeah, had problems with hours, but when you have uh, all these viruses are almost almost certainly, and we have some evidence to suggest that they are circulating in wild populations. So it's these viruses themselves are not like unique to captivity. Um, it, man, if I could go back in time for one thing, when I was in Africa, there was, there was um, a ball python that had a resp, and you don't see resp in wild snakes. And looking at that snake, what I know now, of course, I, nidovirus I don't think had even been described at that time, but if I could have if I could swab one snake in the world, it would be that one because I would wager money that it would uh, would have ended up popping a positive. Just looking at how the the mouth looked and the reddening of the mouth and stuff like that, it's very very consistent with with nidovirus. And so I guess this is another opportunity to talk about not just so we know that that it causes rest, but honestly, when you get these really infected individuals, the the process of how the disease works is really it's it's heartbreaking um what it's doing is the tissue the the um epithelial tissue in the lungs should be 
one cell layer thick. You're talking about where oxygen and blood are, are exchanging gases. So you don't, you want that to be really, really thin. What nidovirus does is it causes those cells, that thin little layer to thicken to where it's three, four, five cell layers deep to the point where oxygen can't get from the lungs to the bloodstream. Um, so you're really kind of having these snakes slowly over months and months suffocate. It, it, it's, it's, it's really kind of horrible when you, when you, when you think about how, what it's actually doing it. And you can look at the slides of, of the histology on some of these snakes and, and literally see well, they have uh, immunohistochemistry, which, which causes the um, proteins that the virus is producing to glow in these slides. And so you can see that you have your healthy lung that's not glowing, that's a little thin layer thick. And then you have the tissue where the virus is proliferating and it's four or five or six cell layers deep, glowing bright colors. And, and you just, you know, there's no gas exchange occurring there. And eventually their, their lungs just get so kind of inflamed that, that they can no longer breathe efficiently. So it really is a, a, a heartbreaking disease and at least the ones that are that are causing disease. That's terrible. I had no idea. And what, as far as those animals that seem to seasonally show it, is that thickening of the, the lungs, is that only happening seasonally or is that persistent throughout the whole thing? I don't know if we have enough information to really, uh, to really know one way or the other. Yeah. We just know that that is eventually what the cause of what death happens. is. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I know what when you have these snakes that that there's no question they're like full blown rest. I know that's what the inside of their lungs look like. And the way I look at the industry now, I honestly would not even come close to being surprised if the majority of respiratory infections we see have nidovirus as a root cause. Um, yeah, there's really, I, I, I have a feeling that when testing, if testing becomes more mainstream, that, that people are going to have some, some unpleasant surprises. Again, in my colony of 155 animals, almost so half of the species of python that i had had their own unique nidovirus and only one of them was causing problems so it's out there and it's really trying to decide when it's going to be medically relevant or not so for example i have a reticulated python right now that we just found out through twi uh, changing our primers is positive for a, a kind of a divergent strain of, of species of nidovirus and i don't know what to do with this animal because I've had it for five years. I've bred it. Nothing I've bred to has ever gotten sick from it. It itself has never gotten sick. I, I, don't, I don't know what the, I, I, I wish I knew how nidovirus is supposed to, um, how we deal with it as an industry, because I don't know if eradication is, is really going to be a feasible goal or even a goal that, that might be necessary. I mean, if we're if we're culling otherwise healthy snakes, I I don't know. That's what these are the things that I've I've thought myself in loops about of of what is, uh, how do we deal with this? Because obviously you took a very very hard stance in the euthanasia route. I mean, is that though something that people should do, people should or do? or should we just chill for now? I don't I don't know. 
Um, I would definitely say that if, if it's causing medically relevant symptoms, if it's causing respiratory infection, that might be a scenario where euthanasia is, is really going to be the best way to go about it. Um, I know looking back on it now, the animal, some of the animals that are euthanized, I really don't know if that was the best call to make or not. Because again, if it's a green tree python that I've had for a decade, that I've bred multiple times, that's never given me any problem, is it justifiable to euthanize that animal because I'm scared it's going to make a jump into my carpet pythons? Because in the carpet pythons, it would probably wipe them out. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> again, these are the things that, 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 that keep me up at night because I don't know if there's an answer to them. So I really guess it just comes down to how you want to manage it in your own colony, the risks you choose to take and the ones you don't. And most importantly, when you're transferring animals, do a good quarantine. And if, if nidovirus is specifically what you're concerned about, do nidovirus testing. I would do one at the beginning and one at the end of quarantine. This feels... Um contradictory to say of like all the things we talk about snakes but i feel like part of me is like okay if you're seeing some ris move your snakes for a second like move them to a different part of your house see or like you know you talk oh about, yeah quarantine like, the sick well, animal no, I'm not, no no that's what i'm saying he said when he moved his things that's when a lot of the you know symptoms showed up more like just that little bit of stress reduced and so it, it feels wrong but i'm like maybe <laughs> you're seeing that Put them through a little bit of stress. No, and that's, it's even, we've, I don't know. Uh, we've actually joked about that a couple of times. We're like, I guess if we want to figure out what has nidovirus without spending tens of thousands of dollars on testing, just pop a window when it's cold and right. like see what happens over the next week and see. Who, I wouldn't recommend doing that. It would probably be a bad idea. Oh, but it, it's it's hard wrong. Because... It feels wrong. But then at the same time, it might, always... it might reveal something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We've always equated good snake keeping with keeping things stable. So we always thought we go outside those parameters, specifically with pythons, a lot of species, you're going to see those symptoms. But maybe, um, you know, it's the wild, there's well, fluctuating temperatures all the time. Maybe if you're already seeing, well, yeah. no, but if you're already seeing a little bit of those symptoms, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's it hard to say. If now, when, yep. <laughs> Welcome to, to the to the world that's been spinning in my head for the past uh, better part of a year now. It just, yeah, I have all these questions, no answers and no way to even think about how you would, how you would functionally answer them. Right. We're kind of, we're in the learning stage right now. I mean, we are. And it's, it's the first virus was confirmed like 2014. Is that what you said? I, I have to remember when the first study, let's see if I can find that study real quick. It was not that long ago. That being said, I know people have had hints of some sort of virus causing respiratory distress. Yep, 2014 is when the first ones were, right. were published. So it's yeah. only been five years. Yeah, it's been five years. And I would even say within the past year has been when, when testing has really become even an option. Um, and I will say as far as testing goes, testing is one of those things where, where you very, very much get what you pay for. That's not something that you can skimp out on in cost and still get a, a result that you can trust in the same way. Right, right. You, you can't go to your dollar store testing. You need Saks Fifth Avenue testing. <laughs> <laughs> what did I just come back to? You were saying at 
far as NIDO testing, yes, you it's pricey, but you can't, that's not something you can skimp out on because yeah, you pay not, for what you pay. So, you pay. Yeah. Not all tests are creative, e created equal. And it, it does cost, uh, it's uh, because these tests aren't cheap, it's, it's tempting to say, oh, they're just profiting off of our misfortune. They're not making money off these tests, really. I mean, these reagents to run these tests and to have these controls to know that what you're testing is is a functional test, it's not cheap. And if you want a result you can trust, that comes in the form of a of a test that, you know, is is does cost money. And the more people who get it done, the more they have to base their data. You know, the more exactly, population. Yeah they have to base their data off of and more of a more accurate, accurate right a more accurate result you're going to get yeah yeah so yeah at this point i'm of the mindset that if you haven't tested your colony it's more likely you're probably safer to assume that there is a nidovirus in it than that there isn't and moving from that point it's really up to you to decide is this something i'm so concerned that i'm going to screen for or is this something that i'm going to wait for a problem to occur and then make the decision there. The problem is when a problem occurs, you don't know how, what the scope of that problem could be. And it I might be, like you know, sometimes. yeah, especially, and we had talked about this before, before we went on, but, but uh, yeah, the, the Ford flies, the, the fruit flies and stuff that almost every herb collection has that. So night of ours itself, we have, we have no reason to think that it's really going to be airborne really in any capacity beyond just maybe how far the snake can breathe it. So you're really, you're talking about direct contact. I don't know if I can say that rule holds true when you add flies to the equation. Cause if you look at the flies themselves, they're, they're all up in those cages and there's no, no reason to think that they couldn't start spreading some of that stuff around. So another thing to keep you guys up at night. They are yeah, and those particular hate them. Those so particular much. flies feed off, you know, the the poop, the poop and stuff like that. So, but that the question is, can they bite another snake, or how would it go? They don't even from... need to bite it. It just needs to be transferring that that little bit of RNA. You know, uh, you're you're talking about. I don't remember how big the genome is on on this specific virus, but it's not big. You're not talking about a big. It would be very, very easy for a fly to land on. Uh, so the other thing we know is that these snakes, they're, they're swallowing a ton of this virus. So their feces, at least on a test, are loaded with virus. Whether or not that virus comes out the other end and it's still like able to be infectious or not, I don't know. But that's where the flies are coming out of. And we know that's loaded with viral RNA. And now, even for our folks who don't keep pythons, even though we've talked, you know, particularly about it in pythons, are there instances where I know nidovirus has been found in corn snakes from what Pia told us, but has there been a deadly strain of nidovirus in colubrid species? Do you know? Um, I know we are, there are colubrid strain species. Um, I don't know if I have the notes to know if that was a one that was causing, I mean, clearly the fact that they ended up testing for it would mean, would hint that there probably was some problem to suggest that a test would be necessary in the first place. So could be, I know there's, there's several boa nidovirus species now, almost from every major group of boas. Um, 
the, again, the highest diversity we see is in pythons, but there are some in colubrids. There's, I mean, we haven't, um, there was a, a mass die off of uh, turtle species in Australia that was uh, from a nidovirus. So it's, I don't know if I can say it's most prevalent in certain groups so much as to say that we know it's prevalent because that's the groups we've looked in. Right. And now, is there any hopes that there's going to be some type of treatment for nidovirus? Probably not. To be, <laughs> yeah. I like how freaked that well, was. Yeah, okay. I mean, so you're because you're not even talking about. So when we say nidovirus, what we're really talking about is like twenty different. It's probably, as if probably twenty different like viruses, different forms. Exactly. It's like it's like the flu virus. I mean, what what you the treatment you could even develop this year. So RNA is is very very much so RNA makes uh, for this virus makes a ton of copies of itself. It doesn't have the same kind of DNA template strand proofreading mechanisms that that double stranded RNA does. So it's very prone to just a replication error to the point where where these viruses are probably mutate at a very 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 high rate to the point where even if we developed a treatment it wouldn't cover all the nidoviruses. And even if it did, it probably wouldn't cover next year's nidoviruses. But, but again, that's speculation on my part, but I wouldn't hold my breath for, for treatment. I mean, it makes and, but there's also, there's not gonna be funding in order for us to go to war with nidovirus and keep on coming out with new things every single year as it evolves. I exactly, yep. Well, that was what I was going to say. Similarly, before someone <laughs> cut me off, I was going to say, think about the amount of funding we have towards flu. and we Think about the amount of funding we have towards snakes in general. Oh. It's not No, flu is more than that. <laughs> flu know. gets more money than snakes. No, of course yeah. it does. Think, think about As how much should. money goes to flu, and we can't even... One convince people to vaccine against it. Well, you know that's those a vaccines topic. give you that's, autism, a different top, right? that's a different topic. But two... <laughs> You know, telling people like, yes, you can vaccinate, but that's not going to, that doesn't mean you don't get flu because flu mutates and there's different strains of it every single year. And it's impossible to keep up with every single Or strain. like your staff infections and stuff. Sure. Like and so that. I can yeah. only imagine in NIDA what we don't have funding for, like just these little, you know, three people who are studying it. That's a guess. Um, but yeah. off the mark. <laughs> but yeah, the three people who are studying it, like they can't keep up with it. It's just, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's to say it. But. So if I could do if I could do one thing, if I could make Herper's tattoo one thing on the back of their eyelids to be the first thing you see when you walk in your door of the snake room is that uh, was that a, a ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, um, where you uh, your your best defense is going to be screening and quarantine. That's that's really what it. If you're talking about through a functional lens, how do we get ahead of this? That's really just going to be it, as far as making sure a problem doesn't happen, and then when that problem happens, oh man, who who knows? Who knows how to so, deal with it? The the rule book hasn't been written, and when I first started getting positives, I was like, I'm going to be the uh, example of how you deal with a nidovirus infection. And I threw a bunch of money on it. I threw as much prevention as I possibly could, as much screening, as much isolation. I have, I have different 
I literally change into each of my rooms. So clothes and shoes and stuff don't leave, don't transfer between rooms. Buckets, uh, rats don't transfer between rooms. It's a one-way flow. If something, if a rat goes into that room, it will never, ever come out. It is a one-way flow. And if a snake doesn't eat a rat, it doesn't go to the next snake. So it, it's, it's really... I, I, again, I wanted to be the, this is how you deal with a nidovirus infection. And through all that, I still walk into my building and I don't know how much trust I can place in any given animal to be truly negative. Because I, 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 are you a negative or are you, am I doing such a good job that, that your infection rate is so low that I'm creating a whole colony of, of typhoid Marys to, uh, Three, four. I don't know. So, so yeah. were you slightly OCD before Nido? <laughs> well, he didn't make a database help. based yeah. on every single thing that happened in. Or at least, were you slightly OCD before Eugene Bassett? <laughs> I would definitely say it brought out those characteristics more so. Yeah. Wow. But I'm glad someone's doing it to set an example of what we can do. So are you going to start changing your clothes when you enter the snake room, All right, let's not get carried away. <laughs> are you going to have no. us make some snake room clothes? I don't know. I'm thinking about it. The other Why thing that, that people don't think about is, like, when you take animals to a trade show, you really should probably quarantine those animals when they come back into your colony. How That's much fair. trust can you place in it? How much trust do you see in those little kids going to every single booth, petting every single snake and you're like oh here's a dab of hand sanitizer what is the contact time for hand sanitizer to be effective against nidovirus we have no way to know that at least until with our current knowledge um hopefully some of the projects that we're working on will will provide some answers to some of that but yeah yeah. Can you at least tell us that F10 or, you know, your common veterinary cleaners would uh, kill the virus? So, again, there's there's really these aren't inherently tough things. They really are kind of fragile within the environment. Uh, there's no reason to think that your common disinfectants wouldn't be pretty effective against them. But we don't know, know that. But I I use F10 and I have a fair amount of faith in that. Okay, so it's mostly this, the contact. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and so here's another thing that I do within my colony. So within my colony, I have, you know, racks, and within these racks, I might have, um, I tend to group species together if I can, but that isn't always the case. So between each rack, I, I, uh, I'm a big believer in gloves, so I swap out gloves every rack. And within each rack, every time I transfer between either a species or between a breeding group, um, I have automated hand sanitizing dispensers. And so I'll sanitize the gloves between uh, each species in a given rack. So again, it, it really just comes down to building these layers of isolation. And that might sound like an annoying thing, but if you have an automated hand sanitizer, it's just, that's it. If that's all it takes to keep my colony safe, do it. There's no reason not to, to to tighten up biosecurity a little bit. That's yeah. I'll I'll be beating the biosecurity drum until hopefully I get a PhD. But uh, <laughs> hopefully so you pass that point. You'll work for the um. Shoot, I should have thought about this before I started. Oh, this. good one. What's the organization that 
CDC. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Maybe one day you'll end up working for the CDC. Because we we are currently in the middle of a snake zombie apocalypse, (laughs) is what it seems. So what's what's so funny to me about about really all of this is that if you'd asked me two years ago, pathogens sounded like the most boring thing physically possible. And we all do that. When we learn about animals, we're always, and it's really bad, we, we focus on the charismatic megafauna, the, the elephants, the rhinos, the stuff like that. But even within our own bubbles where we like snakes, the thing that nobody likes, how many of us snake people care about pathogens? Have any of the remotest interest in learning about pathogens. I know I didn't. I could not care less. There does not sound like a more boring thing in the universe than than learning about bacteria and viruses. Like you can't even you can't, see. you can't even play with them. Like you can't hold them. They're not fun. They don't yeah. So um it's sort of funny that that I'm that I'm continuing my career of working with animals, but instead of working with animals, I'm working with the little bugs that infect the the animals and you know my day to day it's it's i don't even see the the animals i just see what the swabs and cell cultures and stuff that come out of them but being just you know 30 40 years into how much we're captive breeding at this point i mean being so young in the industry this seems like that might be one of the most important issues that we face in our industry it is. And this is something that, again, kind of ties back into the database system where I'm talking about what is a population of ball pythons going to look like? What is a captive population of ball pythons going to look like 100 years from now? And a big slice of that pie that if we are not paying attention to, uh, we certainly need to, is, is that of pathogens. The pathogens, the, again, the, pa- the, the, the captive snakes we have don't have the same pathogens uh, as our wild snakes because they're not they're, they're exposed to entirely different species from entirely different regions of the world. How on earth is that going to mutate out over the course of 100 years? Who knows? So that's where I, I, I really think it comes down to uh, if we don't start putting a data system in place to, to kind of engineer that, we're really at the mercy of it. And I don't like that feeling. So are you saying we should do something different with our snake shit? <sighs> okay, that's one I thought about a lot about too. Um, I I personally think landfill is probably probably sufficiently safe. I don't I wouldn't be autoclaving all of my trash. I don't think that's that's necessary. Um, but what I do think about now is how okay, so every time spring summer hits the first thing everyone you see you see this huge influx of it's warm so i can take outdoor photos of my snake here it is in the grass here it is on a log in the park you know in my backyard you get these pretty photos of a snake outside and uh that worries me now so i would say if you're going to put snakes in a natural environment even just for a photo make an artificial setup have a log that you bring there with it and that snake sits on the log but you know that log goes back home with you and you sanitize it you know it's it's really it's about building in all these layers uh now as far as getting rid of trash i think if you bag it you would probably be relatively safe i mean it's either fragile enough that it's going to die pretty quickly, or it's so tough that you'd have no hope of killing it to the point where the cat could already be out of the bag. Again, 100% speculation on my part. Don't 
<laughs> I don't know how much certainty I can I can say for people um, to adopt these management principles, but it's certainly something that if you're not thinking about, sooner or later it could circle back around on you. Right. And really could circle back around on all of us. The last thing we want, uh, me as someone researching reptile pathogens now, I would so much rather be studying a pathogen in captive snakes than I would something that's hurting wild populations. So do your part. Biosecurity is a thing. Pay attention to it. <laughs> if you're at least thinking about it, even if it does nothing, if you're at least thinking about it, maybe we kind of chip away at some of that, that lines of thinking that have, uh, you know, we can start breaking those old, old habits. Mm -hmm. I have to say in the beginning of this podcast, I was like, oh, it'd be really interesting to be in his brain. But now I'm brain really, scary place, No, but man. now I'm really happy to not <laughs> be in your brain because your brain sounds like a very interesting but scary place. Like I said, the world is is much scarier now than it was a year or two years ago. Yeah. It's I'm glad I have this insight, but it would have been great to have gotten this insight not through losing a majority of my life's work in a form of a snake colony up till this point. Right. And have you done any research as far as, um, you know, there's a bunch of other things going on in wild populations, say your uh, chytric fungus, say your uh, fungal disease that we're seeing in the Northeast and some wild populations. I mean, have you looked at those things as well? I haven't specifically. Um, I know some of those pathogens, there's a number of different labs looking at it. We actually aren't working on too many chytrid projects, but um, yeah, that's not something I have as much. Man, as much as virus and bacteria are crazy, you start talking about fungus. Fungus is, is like <laughs> 10 levels crazier. And you can even go above that. If, uh, if heaven forbid, we, we ever have a prion disease that gets, that pops up somewhere. <sighs> The, the prions are, are, oh man. So the world's full of scary things. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information, but. So now when you, you mentioned that you saw like a wild ball python with what looked like an RI, are you going to be cognizant in the future? I mean, are you going to have swabs on you? Do you want to test some wild animals in the future? Uh, I very much would like to, to do that. Um, I'm trying to see if I can work out another West Africa trip and maybe do some uh, swabbing there. But there's also a couple of different populations I'd be I'd be interested in swabbing. Um, it gets a little bit more tricky. Luckily, I, I have experience in dealing with CITES, but um, you know when you're shipping some of those samples, it it, it becomes a little more paperwork heavy. So that is definitely a huge goal I would like to have as part of my my PhD is start incorporating in situ wild populations um it's really just going to be trying to figure out if that that piece can fit okay so that is a perfect transition to asking about west africa but i have one <laughs> last i have one last non-africa we already question. scared the sure. shit out of people for a straight hour yeah but that's a different it's in a different <laughs> continent it won't yeah. scare people as much but i have one question <laughs> Okay, so kind of a personal question. So you've been talking a lot about like your facilities and everything. So were you never the college kid who like hid snakes in their dorm room? You had a facility from the get-go? 
So I got really, really lucky. Um, in 2012 is when I started um, college, uh, my undergrad. And that happened to be at a time when a real estate market was was pretty low. So I'm, I'm out here on five acres. I have I'm five acres in the woods, that buildings, stuff like that, infrastructure in place. And we got it for, for very dirt cheap. The, the rent or the, the mortgage I pay on this place is actually cheaper than it would have been to live in a single bedroom or a, 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 a shared dorm. What? So again, it was right place, right time. I've had a number of these scenarios where, where I, I am extremely lucky in some ways and then in other ways that, you know, I guess it all evens out. But I mean, the fact that you're not 25 yet and you've done <laughs> so much and are like significantly smarter than people twice your age. We're so much older than you. No, I'm not so... talking about us. I'm talking about other people. I like I, that uh... he's close to our age. It's fun having <laughs> someone our age, or close to our age. I really also... don't. Yeah, I don't think I can give myself that much per credit. It's it's really just a combination of of luck and in a certain sense, failing forward, I guess. I mean, true. Do you think you'd be where you are without living in Florida? Oh, who knows? <laughs> Probably not. I, I I hate the cold. North Florida is is way colder for me even still. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm don't don't know if if anyone should live between or not live outside the range of the uh, Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn. I'm like, uh, that's my range. I'm way outside of that currently. I can't grow a mango mango tree outside and that makes me cry inside so you're just cold blooded apparently i'm just cold blooded yeah but i mean just think about the opportunities you've been awarded living in florida i think i think that's one of the the big things that we've come across with florida people is that they have a good network and they've all made it work as far as you know so many people who do this for a living have been able to to do Capitalize so because of you know they're in, in that environment yeah, well, I can even extend that out to, to just, again, sheer dumb luck. And the, the childhood home I grew up in was like just down the street from um, Dr. Pritchard's, which is the Colonian Research Institute. And he was on the forefront of really turtle and tortoise biology. Um, but again, a big person at UF. So I, I, here I have this, and he was one of the few people that studied under Archie Carr. Um, so you have this sort of, this this legacy reptile biologist living just down the street and so from as early as seventh grade i think i was i was volunteering at his facility so it, it it's half dumb luck half just you know meeting the right people i guess right so now let's talk about what made you go to africa the first time so i was actually uh, so my undergrad was in wildlife ecology and conservation I was in Africa for actually a totally unrelated reason. I was there for pangolin conservation. Um, so pangolins, pangolins, they're a kind of like a, they're not related to anteaters, but they look like a scaled anteater. They're like halfway between a, an anteater and an armadillo. Um, and they're actually the most trafficked mammal, maybe even the most trafficked animal on the planet. That might be abalone, I'm not sure. But at least the most trafficked mammal on the planet uh, where Asian and um, African species are being just killed in mass for harvesting of these scales for um, kind of traditional medicine, which really does does nothing. So these 
uh, I was there for, for pangolins. Um, but while I was there, I'm like, I'm in West Africa. I'm never probably going to get the chance to, to be back here. So I'm going to visit all these ball python facilities. And it actually kind of worked out where I was able to, to handpick stuff there and send back to the States. Um, where I was you know, able to, to, to pick weird ball pythons straight out of the egg. But it, that was not my intention of going there, but it kind of actually, with the stuff I brought back that ended up panning out into projects, more or less kind of paid for the trip itself. Um, so one of the things that the projects I'm most excited about, so um, I went to a number of these facilities and the way these facilities operate, at least at the time, um, is they would find these gravid females in the wild, bring them to a central location, which if you, again, if you're into pathogens as I am now, I'm like, ah, but bring them to a central location, wait for them to drop. And then once they laid, they would send those females back kind of at random um, to the wild. And it actually seemed to be kind of more or less uh, sustainable. But what that also means is that the genetic flow between populations is kind of artificially bolstered where you know, you can have a snake that's collected in one region, but it may be re-released in a different region. So there's really not any sort of locality of all pythons that I would tr have trust in. We in in our tirades, our, our um, exploring of West Africa, we made it out hours down this dirt track that was in an area where ball pythons weren't being field collected. Um, and there was a Frenchman on his front porch had a wire cage with a bunch of ball pythons that he had found locally. And in that cage was the biggest ball python I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, she measured out six foot two inches wow. um, out of the wild, hadn't eaten in six months, hadn't been given water in six months and was like 3,500 grams. So this was a location that no collection had historically ever taken place in. So I have a pair of ball pythons that I know, I have the GPS points of where they were collected, know they are from that locality. And so I have like these, I'm calling them uh, Zio River locality ball pythons, where they're, they're, they're really on the banks of this one river in Togo. Um, where again, it's just, I don't know of any other ball pythons out there that I would actually have faith in being a true locality if I hadn't gone there myself and known that this was an area that they were never collected it but i actually ended up trading the guy a pair of snake tongs because he was like the guy in the village that whenever there was a snake found they'd call him and uh he had just been bitten by a stiletto snake like the year prior and i'm like yeah he had like a piece of bent rebar that was what he was using as a snake hook and i'm like give me i'll trade you this snake tongs for this pair of ball pythons and uh so yeah that's how i have this this massive massive ball python and, and you saved a guy's life yeah, at least saved his finger. That was the yeah. other snake we did find the most of there was stiletto snakes. I mean, we found, I think, two or three over the course of each trip. So I, I did two trips to West Africa. And um, so one that you and uh, you had, um, uh, crap, blanket on name, um, Marco on. He was talking about uh, snake bite stones. So this is actually one I brought back from West Africa that was sold in a market as as a, a, a snake bite stone where, you know, you would, they would sell this to you, you you'd apply it to your wound, 
And when it fell off, you were either dead or cured. <laughs> and the ones that, 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 that lived, they're like, yep, it works. And the ones that died, they're like, well, guess it didn't, uh, didn't extend that far. So yeah, you were meant to die, I guess. Yeah. So God's plan. It, it really is. Uh, it was, it was really quite interesting just seeing how all the logistics of, of the captive trade and ball pythons work over there. And when you're talking about wildlife in West Africa, there's really not that many um, pleasant stories. It's, it's, it's really just the same story over and over again of, you know, us hitting these natural resources too hard. Bushmeat's still very, very much a thing there. Um, even these snakes have medicinal properties. And, and you know, when, uh, when you find a snake, you're, you're going to kill it. So um, the one exception to that is the trade in captive ball pythons. Again, at least at the time. Now, from what I'm hearing, it's sort of shifted where now that our market has sort of softened, that um, some of the adult animals might be ending up in the skin trade instead of being re-released. But um, the ball pythons are one of the few stories that you can kind of tell as a, a West African success story in conservation. Um, which is interesting in the sense of, of that our domestic trade in ball pythons here can have relevance towards wild populations, even when they're generations removed, because the, the shifts we have in de, uh, market demand here are reflected in the snakes that they collect there. And, you know, a couple of dollars is the difference between profitability and not. And when it's, when it's no longer profitable, those snakes end up back on the, uh, Bush meat and skinning uh, docket. So, I mean, you're thinking either way, this animal is going to get harvested, but if it holds a higher value, less are going to be harvested than, say, the skin trade that's like, you know, blood pythons is like a crazy market for the skin trade right now, or probably yes. possibly Burmese as well. Yeah. Well, really, it comes down to is releasing this python back into the wild more financially viable for me than harvesting it in this very moment? And the answer up until the recent history for that has been yes, that, that releasing it and hoping that you recollect or collect enough, you know, keeping that wild population going um, to harvest eggs from next, next year was profitable enough to justify it. Maybe that equation's changed since then. Um, and it would be kind of sad if it, if, it, if it did. So that's one of the things that so I think there's always going to be a demand for normal ball pythons. If I have control of those normal ball pythons coming from a sustainably managed ranched West African ball pythons that, that values keeping that wild population in place versus the ones we produce domestically, I would much rather them a, a sustainable trade be developed in West Africa. So that's one of the things that, that I have attacked with my databases is trying to cut down on as many normals as possible, um, not only from a financial point, but also to develop, uh, to, to leave room for a sustainable market coming out of West Africa. And now, I don't know if you've seen it, but I think it was uh, the IUCN, they had a study not too long ago, I think it probably came out in like 2014 or 13 about, you know, the overall conservation status of the ball python. And they had 
basically they followed a few hunters and went through their range from say 2006 to 2012. I'm making this up because I don't remember it off the top of my head, but they were seeing that collectors were having to go further lengths and more miles basically to find the same amount of ball pythons to bring into the pet trade. And it didn't seem, at least from that study, that they were doing that same method that you explained. So, like, is it possible that it's done differently in different areas in different countries? Yeah, it's definitely done differently in different areas in different countries and even different years. Um, Yeah, if if, so, one of the two years that I was there, um, the CITES cost to export a ball python was actually more than the ball pythons were selling. So none really got exported and a lot of them ended up being released actually. But if you look at, so with the current system in place of find a gravid snake, bring her to a location, lays eggs, release her. If you look at uh, relocation of snakes and really animals in general, but especially snakes, their survival rates are pretty abysmal. So if I could tweak one thing about at least the system I saw in West Africa, it'd be that the snakes go back to the location they came from. Um, just that in and of itself, that little tweak is going to make leaps and bounds as far as sustainability goes. But even still, this is a species that's really done well in um, human altered agricultural areas. So yeah, impacts are really just gonna come down to how, I guess, how closely we pay attention. And what we're kind of, I guess I've seen different things over there as far as um, obviously you see Noah's collections probably more so like a modern commercial breeders, you know, even though he's in Africa, he's breeding much like a lot of our commercial breeders, I could imagine. But or, or were you visiting like villages and were they keeping super different than, you know, our commercial? So, I mean, kind of a, a mix of both uh, as far as so there was um a location in Togo that I went to, um, they had they had really kind of a, an impressive facility, um, especially at least in, in terms of like West African standards, where you really have to get creative on, on solving some of these logistical problems. There's no but freedom breeders over there or anything? There's not, no. <laughs> um, but um, I did actually go to Noah's collection. Um, and so he's in Ghana. Um, and yeah, his, his facility is kind of more reflective of what we'd see in our, our, uh, captive colonies, but. And can you explain more of who Noah is? Cause we're just kind of saying a name and I'm sure people don't, may not know who he is. Yes. So Noah is, I have, I, Noah cracks me up. I, I really enjoyed spending time with Noah. So Noah is kind of the, the OG of, um, ball Python morphs. If it's a morph ball python and it's coming out of West Africa, Noah was in some way, shape or form probably involved with it. He was really kind of the person that invented these, you know, at the time, $100,000 ball python. Now that's, you know, kind of a unicorn, but, but at the time that the, the amount of money people were throwing into West Africa, Noah plays a direct cause Imagine how in much that. that, how far that $50,000 went in West Africa. Like, he's like, these stupid white dudes are willing to pay $50,000 for me to send over this ball python. <laughs> yeah. So my, uh, my story on Noah, cause there was, there was uh, a ball python that I was interested in purchasing, but, but we couldn't quite, um, come to, to, uh, uh, you know, 
get on the same, make our numbers work for each other. Um, but we ended up going to uh, a bar to kind of talk about it. And uh, it was like right before my flight. And I'm like, uh, okay, Noah, it's been great. I got to go, got to make it to the airport, got to make the flight. So he's actually the head of, uh, I think the Department of Tourism in West Africa or something like that. <laughs> yeah. He's like, don't, don't worry, don't worry. You just stay here. I make two phone calls and the plane waits for you on the tarmac. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that he was 100% dead serious. But I'm like, no, I appreciate it, but I'm not going to be that guy. I've got to go. Yeah. It, Noah, I really did enjoy uh, getting a chance to meet Noah. And that was really a dream come true. When I was, if you had told me the first clutch of ball pythons that I hatched out where Noah was just like this, this untouchable ball python ghost out of and you weren't even West sure Africa. like how could anyone get in touch with them because yeah a lot of the guys probably wouldn't want you to get in touch with them because he's got the goods so yeah if you had told me that i would be i'd be at a bar sharing a beer with him and in, in, in ghana it man it i've really had quite the run of 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 herpetological experience i i've every every major goal i've had with herpeticulture i've been able to check off and it, it's it's been fantastic. It really has. And even then, I mean, you were early 20s, I'm sure, at that time. Yeah, I don't even, I don't think I was even 21 yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So, and then I'm sure you saw some on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, in terms of? Um, Collections as far as how things were capped. How oh, things in West done. Africa? Oh, there's yeah. no, he's the only person actually keeping uh, all the other places, it's it's the snakes are just there for as long as they lay eggs. The snakes are never getting a meal. Um, the, there's no you, you could not could not find rodents in West Africa, uh, and even that was one of the problems that Noah was having is that he couldn't find food to feed his rodent colony. You know, he was having to use like corn husk type stuff. You know, it just you're you're really limited on on the resources you have there to to pull off a colony there. You you have to be very creative and he's done a good job of that. Um but he's probably the only person I know that could really feasibly do that easily. And will those villagers, I mean, do they just sell to someone like Noah who ultimately does the you know all the hard work to get all the CITES paperwork and export? Yes. Yeah, exactly. There's really there's I'm sure if you you fished around, you could find a couple more, but I'd say there's probably less than a dozen people actually doing exporting out of West Africa. So one way or another, it all kind of funnels down to them. And everyone is, everyone knows each other. It's not a small community there, so, or not a large community. Right. And man, that two hours went really, really quickly, but it was amazing. You know, it's funny. Before this, we're like, oh, we want to talk a lot about West Africa and like that be the most. And then I feel like we ended up talking about that super quick at the end just because we got like in and he was saying like you know i don't know how much i can say in depth in the research but we kind of talked about nido and all the other stuff for a long Went about time. as in depth as a you know as i could have ever hoped of and other than that i mean what is the future besides getting your phd what's the future of you know reptilis herps are you still breeding um not really i mean the so the collection i have in place now is um, kind of obscure python species and then morphs I've either brought back from West Africa or uh, stuff that genuinely gives me enjoyment. And it's been nice to kind of be back at that point again. Um, the thing I'm working on now, so I, I kind of have two, two things, at least in relevance to herpeticulture, 
I'm really interested and kind of like this meshing between the old school rack way of keeping and this new wave of like, you know, bioactive type, you know, the, the, the whole cage versus rack type thing. I'm really tempted on what does a hybrid of the two look like. So one of the things I'm working on now is um, trying to find what I think my ideal cage for a reticulated Python would be that is still able to be scalable. So I'm kind of using my collection as stuff I enjoy, but then really I, a, a laboratory for what I think herpticulture could look like in the future. And then on top of that, what I've really been jazzed about has been the, the databases and not even just limited to, to pythons, but even other um, uses where, where I'm like, there needs to be a database in place there uh, if you really wanted to manage this. I mean, it could be anything from cell culture to uh, animal products. You know, there's the room for data to exist in the future is, is I really think is going to be imperative. So I would say my shift has been way less uh, commercial production or even like, I really don't want to deal with customers anymore to the point where uh, it'll just be my own enjoyment and, and kind of experimental herpetoculture laboratory. Uh, and then I think the bread and butter is going to shift towards this database stuff because that's something I think is going to be the, the future is almost endless on that. Um, and so the hope is with the PhD that I'll, I'll be able to tie in more of these disease questions uh, in addition to some of the conservation mind and mindedness that, that really got driven into me during my undergrad uh, and paired with animal production work that I've spent my life doing. Absolutely. And on that kind of uh, database front, do you feel like the goals you have set for yourself are completely self-teachable or do you feel like you're going to at some point need to get some education on coding more or anything like that? I actually think it is within the realm of, of self-teaching. Um, all of my background on, on databases that I've done so far is either online courses that are like free or YouTube videos. I mean, there, there's the uh, amount of information that that's out there now is, is it's so easy that, uh, well, I guess the coding itself isn't easy, but the availability of the information is easy enough where if you have a question, you could probably find an answer. It's just a matter of how hard you, you're going to look for it and work for it. Yeah. And just since we have you here and someone who has a larger, um, who's educated in conservation, basically, I mean, how can we as hobbyists play a role in com in conservation? Does our private keeping and breeding play a role at all? Uh, kind of. I don't know. This is something I've, I've, I've um, grappled with a lot, too, because I don't know how much direct relevance it has in the sense that the animals we produce in captivity, especially when you add in morphs to the mix, but even if you don't, we're not even purposefully selecting for animals that are going to do best under our conditions to the point now where over a certain length of time, the animals we have are not going to be reflective of their, their true wild counterparts. So in terms of ever being able to be like a, re, uh, a releasable backup population, and especially if you add diseases to the mix, I don't know how much relevance captive colonies have. 
But when you talk about indirect things, like we've been talking about with West Africa, where our production of ball pythons domestically affects the market over there, which affects wild populations, that is where herpticulture is relevant. And the other areas that it's relevant is, is the fact that um, the insights we have, the I don't think we would have ever discovered nidoviruses if not for captive keepers. So it's really kind of hard to, none of it exists in a vacuum, which is to say that even if what we're doing doesn't directly affect wild populations, it probably does have an effect. Uh, so I guess just keep on keeping on, uh, do, uh, do strong quarantine and um, keep weird stuff, man. We are at a point where we are losing species uh, to herpticulture I I would love to be able to have some sort of like measurable metric to be able to to plot this, but we're having entire species that I think will be lost to herpticulture because they're and it's happened time and time again where they're cheap, no one cares to produce them, they're imported for cheap enough, that country shuts down, and all of a sudden we've had this species that was you couldn't give them away completely lost. So keep some stuff that has no economic viability just because and keep wild strain stuff like so my west african sambo project i've lost stupendous money probably on that project but it's also like we're just one stroke of the pen away from from losing that species altogether because no one's domestically producing them and and because of that we're we're vulnerable and there's a thousand other species that are in that same boat within herpticulture and there's even some that we've already seen it seen it happen to i mean there was uh eugene used to keep king horneye scrub pythons they don't exist in the country i didn't know anymore. that there was any that ever came in i i'm I, i'm pretty sure i've heard yeah i mean that was back before cites was was a thing i mean it used to be the wild west um right but yeah we've lost entire entire species and We'll continue to do so if we don't start paying attention. And that's even just within within herpticulture. Yeah, and that's something that obviously we're all trying to be cognizant of as far as, uh, I mean, the people that we're in the circle of at least, but that's such a far, far uh, minority. I think it's it's become such a far out practice to establish a fresh importer, you know, get oh, yeah. a colony of 10, lose half of them and be cool with that. We're just, it's so foreign, even to us who buy everything captive born and bred, you know, for basically however long we've been keeping. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is kind of in some sense falling out of fashion, but, but um, yeah, we gotta, we gotta wake up cause we're going to lose stuff. Absolutely. And I know you don't want to talk to customers, but if anyone wants to reach out to you or see what you're up to, um, where can they find you on social media? Um, well, I guess you can. So I have a website, which is uh, reptilisherps.com. My Instagram and Facebook are all the same thing, but I think that I like having the idea of being in control of my own website. So if I would direct people anywhere, it would be probably to there first. And then, you know, from there radiate out to Instagram or Facebook or whatever, whatever the strikes your fancy. But um, I'm not actually super active on social media, at least as far as some of the stuff goes. I post some some stuff from time to time, but um, yeah, I've been really trying to just just focus on enjoyment of the animals, which has been a nice change of pace, especially because 
now it's all it's all heavy research academic -y stuff where it's I'm glad it's a fun thing to come home to now these days. Yeah, I'm sure it's a good contrast. Just mindlessly cleaning, but uh, <laughs> TorchCityPythons.com as far as we go. Instagram, Facebook, I thought you were going to say it. Well, you said half of it, so you might as well finish it. <laughs> well, we want to thank you guys so much for watching. And something that we don't usually bring up, but I just feel inspired, we do have a Patreon out there. <laughs> If you feel like if you feel like it come support like us and making videos and stuff like that and our patreon and that's pretty much that um, thank you so much steven for hanging out with us no problem thanks for having me well and i feel like we should promote carpet fest always oh yeah fuck yeah said that in the beginning yeah okay so i'll do the other plug for carpet fest too because they're uh at least the southeastern one their uh auction proceeds in part are going to fund some of the research that I'm working on. So definitely support Carpet Fest. They're, uh, yeah, can't say enough, enough good things about that. Yeah, and Ian really, really killed it for you guys as far he as uh, the he fundraising did. goes. It's amazing. And the amount of work that, that I mean, you're talking about, a, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure plenty of people have thanked Ian, but, but in terms of a thankless job of the amount of work that it really went to put on that thing, man, he's, he's doing a, a massive service. Definitely. Absolutely. When is the OG uh, Carpet Fest? The OG Fest? Carpet Fest is June 7th. See, man, if you're going to bring it up, you better get your date strong June 8th. June 8th. June 8th. June 8th. June 8th. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Slap. Not really Warminster, Pennsylvania. Let's be real. <laughs> he lives in the birds. Wow, shots fired. I mean. From a non-native Philadelphian to talk. a native. How dare I you? I can't talk. But I think even a native would acknowledge that that's the burbs. <laughs> yes. I think, I think. Just north of Philadelphia, Eric. And uh, if you need more information, I believe they have a Facebook page. Yes, there's a group. There's like the Northeast Carpet Fest group. And there's the event, Northeast Carpet Fest. And um, come hang out. It's really just for people to hang out, um, have beers if you like that, or eat food, or just talk to other hurt people for hours. Yes. <laughs> Which is the greatest thing it's about it. It's only a couple uh, weeks away, so yeah. make your plans oh, if you're coming. Snap. Justin I think Smith. our house is full Justin unless... Justin Smith. No, we have degrees. a space for Justin Smith if he Ooh. makes it happen. Peer pressure. Thank totally you guys so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And thank you, Stephen, again for coming on. No we'll problem. We'll be on with you for a little bit longer once we stop going live. Sounds good. Later, guys.